You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, we might, we might get going just on six o'clock, a few last people coming in, but we may as well get started. Um, so welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for brought, braving a potential uh, thunderstorm to come into Melbourne Pavilion today. Um, and welcome to the event, Time Travel, Can Inspiration From Our Past Save Our Holiday Future? My name is Helen. I'm one of the co-moderators for the session today. I just want to start off by um, uh, acknowledging the people of the Eastern Kulin Nations as the traditional owners of the lands on which we're meeting today, uh, paying our respects to their lands, their ancestors and their elders past, present and in the future. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which anyone might be listening to the recording that's going to come out of this event as well. Also, just while we're on the topic, um, I just want to also acknowledge this might have been a tough, particularly yesterday, may have been a, a tough day for people also thinking about um, our relationship with traditional owners uh, or a frustrating day and um, thinking about um, how we might continue on the conversation to um, a more productive conversation and celebration uh, as a nation going forward. So, uh, my name is Helen Rowe. Um, as I said, I'm going to be helping to moderate the session today. Um, and I'll just, we'll do a bit of introductions and then we'll come back to um, Alyssa and myself at the other end of the panel um, came up with this um, idea for this event and we'll talk through a little bit about what's been motivating us to put this together. Sorry, a fly coming across my face there. Um, so, my name is Helen. I, I work with um, Climate Works Australia, I'm heading up their transport team. So, I've got a real interest in sustainability, climate change, uh, transport and cities, as well as place um, and improving people's lives. And also for my sins, doing a PhD at RMIT in sustainable transport. So that's it from me. I'll throw over to Alyssa to introduce herself and then to introduce the rest of our stellar panel of, of people to talk to us today. Great, thank you, Helen. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Alyssa McMillan. I'm an urban planner and I'm particularly focused on creating inclusive and resilient cities. I'm currently at City of Melbourne uh, in City Resilience, but I'm going to draw on a few different insights from my career today across placemaking, uh, urban planning, community development and social policy as well. Um, I'm delighted to be co-convening this event with Helen Rowe um, and yeah, the, the fabulous speakers that we have um, here tonight. So I'm just going to introduce each of them for you. Uh, sitting next to me is Dean Stewart. He's a proud Victorian Wemba Wemba Waigaya man who's worked in ecological and cultural management roles for over 20 years. Dean created and operated the Royal Botanic Gardens Melbourne Aboriginal Heritage Walk in the 1990s before moving on to become the education management for the Koori Heritage Trust. He is now director of his own Aboriginal-owned and operated cultural and ecological business, Aboriginal Tours and Education Melbourne. So good to have you here, Dean. Thank you. Troy Innocent is an urban play scholar, artist, game maker, RMIT research fellow, and creator of 64 Ways of Being, an urban adventure platform blending live art, game design, and public art. 
Based at RMIT University, his work connects code, language, urban play, and mixed realities, exploring ways to reimagine, remake, and reconnect with the world. Thanks, Troy. Uh, next along, we've got Associate, profe sorry, Associate Professor David Nichols, uh, who teaches in urban planning, history, theory, social and cultural planning at University of Melbourne. He has published several, several books, including Trendyville, a co-edited book on cultural sustainability in Australian country towns, and co-edited Urban Australia and Post-Punk. Welcome, David. Uh, next along, we've got Dr. Liz Taylor, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning and Design at Monash University. Using spatial, spatial and historical perspectives, her research develops understanding of long-term urban change and the role of policy settings in it. She has many passions, car parking as contested urban space, dry zones and liquor licensing history, the past and future of industrial land, as well as country swimming pools. Welcome, Liz. Um, and we did have one other speaker. Hello, that's right. Uh, we did have one other speaker. Let's try this one. Uh, we did have one other speaker this evening. Uh, Kate Berry, who is the founder of OK Motels. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, she's not able to be here uh, for this evening's talk, but has been uh, very much a part of developing it. And so uh, we've got a few points that we can share um, from Kate Berry as well on OK Motels. Uh, OK Motels brings music, art and friendship down highways and to motels across regional Victoria. From Charlton to Geelong and beyond, OK Motels brings locals and out-of-towners together in the most memorable ways. Um, so we'll share a few insights from Kate as well. Thanks, Alyssa, for that introduction. And just thanks, everyone, for coming along today. Um, we thought there might be a thunderstorm, you know, uh, obviously uh, Omicron's going through the community, so hesitation for coming out. But what a gorgeous day it's ended up to be. And thanks for, for braving, braving the elements and inclement weather to come out uh, and join us. And it's just nice to be with other people talking about interesting things. So how this got started, as with a lot of things probably last year, it started when Alyssa and I were walking around Moreland uh, in our isolation walks, um, thinking about um, last year's M, M Pavilion uh, event and thinking about what we might pose this year. So some things that were funneling around my mind were around, um, there you go, some nice background noise of the city there. Who <laughs> was talking about trams digging before, the sound of the ambulance going past. Uh, some things that were rallying around in my brain about the idea of travel and, and climate um, and, and history were I was thinking about um, climate change and, tra and travel and how much uh, transport and travel is a contributor to, to our emissions in a large way, particularly um, airplane travel. And that this is going to be a pretty challenging part to bring down in our, in our emissions, like decarbonising air travel is going to be pretty challenging in the, in the long, in the medium and long term. So I was thinking through other ways of, you know, it pushes us to think about reducing how much we travel for our holidays. And I thought, well, you know, that sounds like it's kind of taking something away from us. But obviously in our history, we've had times where flights weren't cheap, we couldn't travel very far. Um, in the history, we didn't have, not necessarily everyone had a car. And so it made me think about history and what, what's happened in the past and what we could reintroduce from our past that might help us um, adapt into the future. And I think building on that has been, has been the COVID era of 
some, something of a natural experiment around that of thinking we've, we've had to experience um, recreation and having a break in different ways. So I was thinking through what, what we can actually gain from that of saying, is there something we can gain from that experience rather than merely thinking about us taking away this, you know, glamorous overseas holidays? Is this something we've lost from the past that we could, we could reintroduce? So that was kind of my thinking about this and, and I was talking to Alyssa about this and she'll share her thoughts at the moment. And we thought, well, let's curate, let's go find a whole bunch of other people that would be really interesting to explore this topic with. So that's kind of what we've done today. But over to you, Alyssa, like what, what sparked your interest in that early conversation walking around Moreland about this kind, of, this kind of topic and what we were hoping to explore? Yeah, thanks, Helen. Um, I've been thinking about a couple of things in relation to this topic and, you know, holidays are, are pretty diverse and it's going to be interesting to hear all, all the different perspectives um, on the panel tonight. Um, but for me, I've been really reflecting on the way that our relationship with the city has been changing. Um, cities aren't static, they're, they're constantly in flux um, and the way that, that we uh, influence the city, um, the way that it responds to, to our needs and to our actions as well, I think is really being seen at the moment with COVID. Uh, there's been a big shift to spend more time in our neighbourhoods as we've been working from home, spending more time there, walking, swimming, uh, shopping in our local neighbourhoods. Um, we've also seen a really big shift in the way that we use our, our public spaces and our urban spaces and we've seen more events and activations as well. And so I'm, I'm quite interested um, in how this creates really exciting opportunities as we start to think about what a holiday means um, and how we might even kind of consider taking small breaks even in our day-to-day. -day. Um, the other thing I've been really reflecting on is around resilience and um, it's an area that, that I work in um, but really is about how we might adapt and um, survive, even thr thrive through uh, some of these types of disruptions that affect us and obviously COVID is a significant disruption. Um, one of the most important things I think about thinking about resilience both for ourselves and for the city um, is about how we might actually bounce forward from a disruption like this. So rather than trying to go back to the state that we were in before, trying to always, you know, go back to something that might be pre-pandemic, how do we actually use this opportunity to transform, to bounce forward, to learn from this and actually create uh, a better city or better situation for ourselves? Um, a couple of the qualities that, that we think about when we think about resilience um, are things like being reflective, so actually learning from the past and quite a lot of our speakers will talk to that today. Um, also being flexible, so thinking about how we might adapt and evolve as we go and being innovative, um, being open to experimenting and looking at different ways. So I'm quite interested to see how that applies to holidays as well. Um, I looked up the definition of a holiday um, just for fun, you know, a little Google search. And uh, the Collins Dictionary, um, it's the first one that popped up, uh, told me that a holiday is a period of time during which you relax and enjoy yourself away from home. Uh, but there were many others, you know, a time when someone does not go to work or school uh, but is free to do what they want, a time set aside for rest, travel or recreation, um, or just taking, taking an exemption or time off. Um, and it made me reflect that many of these things are 
something, a holiday is something you, you get away from your usual life. And I was, I was kind of thinking, well, does it need to be that way? You know, like, can we incorporate more holiday into our everyday uh, as we're kind of connecting more and more with our neighbourhoods and places close to home? Um, so that probably leads nicely into asking our panel some questions, I think, Helen. Um, yeah, so we'll have some questions to the panel and um, we'll leave some time at the end to throw open to you guys to ask some questions as well. So just if there's something that sort of sparks your interest as we're going through, just, just note the idea and we'll, we'll come back to you and give you some time to ask questions later on. Great. Um, should just mention as well, because um, we, we had some really great photos um, and images that we wanted to share with you, and because we don't have a screen here, we've put those up on the M Pavilion page for this talk. Um, so if you just go to today's program, it'll be the first thing that pops up if you want to see them, um, and you'll find a link at the bottom of the blurb there, um, and you can have a, have a little look, and some of the speakers will talk to those as we go through. Alrighty. Dean, <laughs> I'm wondering how you take a break. Um, and do you think that COVID has really given us the opportunity to reconnect with our backyard? Uh, g'day, you mob. I'm going to say Wemendika and also acknowledge the Bunwarang and Boiwarang people of the Kulin Nation, whose ancestral lands we're, we're on now as well. Um, uh, for, 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 for me, most of my work is all about living in the past and going on a journey of knowledge to try to bring it into where we are right now. Um, I normally each year take about um, 15,000 Melburnians on my walk um, along the, right here along the, the Birrarung um, and obviously haven't been able to do it for the last two years. Um, but uh, thousands of people have been a, a part of that over the last few years and it's about providing an opportunity to make a real deeper connection to where we are and we were talking about reflections before um, uh, needing to re uh, taking the time to reflect and basically we're sort of in a forced reflection mode with COVID and isolation and all the rest that we're doing now and I don't think that element within itself, that idea of us needing to find the time or having that forced reflection, um, I think it's actually a, a positive thing um, to try to, for us to take, a, to take a step back, to take a really deep breath uh, in where we are and our place in it uh, as well. And with the walks that I do, uh, that's a part of that process of making that reconnection with place. And I suppose in a way for me, that's a little bit about what holidays are as well, is about making reconnections with yourself and reconnections with the place that you are. And, um, and again, my tours are really a, a, about that and, and, uh, and about making those reconnections with the place that you are. Um, one of the things that I say on my walks um, is don't be a tourist in your own birthplace. Get to know your own backyard. And um, the cultural and historical and ecological walks that I do are really trying to get Melburnians to get in touch with their own country 
their own home as well. Country isn't something that is specifically just for Aboriginal people. For me, country is something for us all. And having a break is an opportunity for us to make that reconnection in a much deeper way. Um, and particularly with the hiatus that we're all in at the moment, it's forced us to make that reconnection in different ways as well. Um, if I could, uh, I just want to read out um, a great colonial, talking about the past, a colonial quote called The Reminiscence of Early Melbourne. Um, and it was written in the um, 18, 1850s and it says, the site and surrounding of the embryotic city when in a state of nature formed a picture of wild and wayward beauty. The eastern hill was a gum and wattle tree forest and the western hill was so clothed with she-oaks as to give the appearance of the primeval park where timber cutting and tree thinning were unknown. Whilst away northwards, as far as the eye could see, the country was uh, undulating, garbed in a vestige of soft green grass. As for herbage, it luxuriated everywhere. The two persons still living who walked through unstreeted Melbourne in 1836 informed me that in places now known as Collins, Burke, Elizabeth and Swanston Street, they raided, waded through grass as green as leek and nearly breast high. The blacks, the emus, the bellwords, the parrots and magpies had the northern quarter to themselves and the kangaroos most afforded the southern side of the riverbank, satisfied with the immense scamperings afforded to them. That's where we are right now. On the waters of a large marsh lying between North Melbourne and salt water, graceful swans, pelican, geese, black, brown and grey teal, uh, cormorants disported themselves, while curlew, spur-winged brother, crane, snipe and quail either waded in its shadows or, or ran along its margins. Uh, margins. Um, we call that docklands now. Um, eels, trout and small um, and a small species of perch and almost innumerable green frogs inhabited its waters and the last name on a warm night held a regular serenade that could be heard over the greater part of the city. Um, imagine being on a warm night right now and listening to a chorus of frogs in the wetlands right in the middle of, of Melbourne. It's been covered over with concrete and cars and credit cards, um, but those connections to place, in a way, are, are still here and is something that's still very important for us as Melburnians, as the newest custodians of this place to make a connection to. And, um, and I think this also affords us an opportunity to make that connection or that holiday um, in our own backyard to, to be able to make some of those connections. The Western Hill um, is what we now call um, Spencer Street Station and the Eastern Hill just over there is now Parliament House uh, as well. And just behind us, Government House was a major camping place for thousands of years for the original community of this place, um, looking out over this area uh, as well. There's heaps of ways to make really deep connections to unlock knowledge and a connection, an intimate connection with your own backyard. And for me, that's a little bit what a holiday is as well. Thanks so much, Dean. I think um, 
you know, often when we go to other places and I'm kind of reflecting for a moment on times when I've travelled overseas, you go exploring, you know, you find out about the place, a little bit about its history, the people that live there. Um, and I think, yeah, what you've just described uh, makes me think we really all need to learn more about the place that we're in uh, and perhaps we could do some more exploring in that way to actually uncover some of those stories and really imagine, uh, you know, the beauty of, of some of those times that you've just described. So thank you. Troy, coming over to you for a question. Um, you have been part of developing a, a fabulous program called 64 Ways of Being. Um, I've done part of it, I highly recommend, um, and I'll let Troy tell you a little bit more about that. Uh, but it really takes the player on a journey using augmented reality to see Melbourne through new eyes. Can you tell us a little bit about the project and how it can uncover different layers of the city, past, present and future? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Alyssa. Um, I think I'll start by uh, defining the area in which I work a little, which is um, this uh, relatively new uh, field of urban play, which is uh, thinking about how we as, as people uh, play in, in, in public space. And this is not kind of like the noisy urban play, so it's not like running, jumping, singing, dancing, um, you know, some of the things you might think of when you think of, of you know, play in a public space, you know, kind of organised sport, for example, or um, skateboarding or parkour, which are, you know, also forms of urban play, but, but more quiet uh, urban play, so the... Um, the, which is more about walking and listening and looking and exploring and being in place, being contemplative, uh, and uh, which you know activates the imagination. So it's more kind of introspective, imaginative uh, engagement uh, with the world. Uh, and so I've been working with this framing of, of public space for uh, about ten years. And and as Alyssa just mentioned, more recently. Uh, over the last last couple of years have developed uh, with uh, collaborators who are game developers and and and, and theater artists and 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 uh, sound artists uh, a, a, a kind of do-it-yourself urban play uh, tool that works on a mobile phone but it does the opposite of I guess what you really think of your mobile phone as being or what it really has become for so many of us, which is like this momentary distraction, a way to kind of portal in and out of places. Like, for example, oh, I need to get to Flinders Street Station. I just dial it in and then I, I kind of walk like a zombie until I get to that space. And then I look up and I'm at the station and I don't really pay attention to the journey. Um, uh, 64 Ways of Being is about a journey. So what we what we did, we... we started the project pre-pandemic, but we quickly found that actually it was a, uh, a way to situate a, a form of um, augmented reality uh, street theatre, and this is where the, the live art component comes in, uh, where you're asked to engage in a, a three-hour show that's run from your phone. So you put, activate Do Not Disturb, put your headphones on, and immerse yourself uh, in in a, a, a kind of a semi-guided tour. It's um, it's not informative. It's not educational. It's more poetic, and you know, it's it's a piece of theatre essentially. Uh, but 
invites you to, to do all those things, to, to walk and contemplate and look and perhaps, you know, there's streets that uh, you walk down every day, um, but there are things you haven't noticed and, and it asks you to, 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 to see those. Uh, and it has immersive audio and augmented reality, which then adds a, a, a layer of content. So we're also bringing our own... Uh, um, artistic vision to these places to kind of reimagine them through urban play. So in, and to think about, well, what if there is a, 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 a portal in this space and you're able to walk into a, 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 um, an immersive you know, digital art installation within a laneway, th things like this. Um, I can give you an idea of what the experience is like a little if you want to look at some of the images. It's completely optional. I'm going to describe these to you, but there are a couple of images from the work uh, in the uh, PDF um, that, that Alyssa mentioned before. But I'll just quickly describe um, the four moments that I chose to, to give you an idea of what this journey is like. Uh, and the first one is really a threshold moment. And um, I think for me, this, is, this came up in our conversation, uh, holidays are about thresholds. You know, when you go from, you know, being in just your regular daily life, uh, uh, you know, being busy, uh, you know, worrying about this, that and the other thing, being at work or being, you know, going, going someplace, you know, kind of thinking about just destination. Uh, rather than where you are right now, like reconnecting to place, as you said, uh, uh, Dean. Um, and so in play, thresholds are a huge thing because when are, you, when are you in play and when are you not in play? And there's a kind of this, this moment where you pass over. There's a, there's, I'm not going to go into a whole lot of game theory, but there's literally the, a theory called the magic circle. And um, the idea is that when you step into this magic imaginary circle, that's when you're in play and that's when your kind of imaginative mind uh, comes into, into effect. So we have a moment at the beginning of 64 Ways of Being where you're on the steps of Parliament, you listen to uh, music and, and um, actually a, a narrative about the environmental history that, that Dean was just speaking about, uh, and then you're asked to, to walk down the steps. And that moment uh, is where you go from being a pedestrian to a player. And uh, so you're invited to cross this threshold so that now you're in the show, now you're in the experience. And so those, that, for me, that's a kind of um, like a, almost like a micro holiday uh, uh, because you're going into another way of being and that's what the work is all about. Um, using you know, things like mobile phones and uh, urban spaces and stories and music and so forth to, to take you into other ways of being uh, in in public, you know, to, to kind of make you vulnerable in public uh, because, you know, when you're sitting in a, in a seat in a theatre, you know, you can kind of have your emotions, you can you know, react, but you're kind of, you know, you're contained, whereas when we're in public space, uh, it's, a, it's a very different uh, uh, experience. So it's also inviting you to be quite brave. Um, there's another image where it's, uh, there's a girl walking down Liverpool Street wearing headphones and um, this is really early on in the work, and uh, there's a there's a, an audio montage there about uh, different um, ways of looking at Melbourne. And so, um, in the in there's what we uh, also bring with 64 ways of being is a number of different voices, languages, uh, and uh, 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 perspectives on the world. And so, as as the player is walking down that street, they're hearing all of these different viewpoints. And so, also, it's also kind of fragmenting, as as Alyssa just said, the layers of the city, its environmental history, its cultural history, um, but also where it's going, what its future is, uh, and. Um, 
the third image is uh, one, uh, is an image of what you see on screen in Elizabeth Street, which is um, uh, uh, we did some um, uh, a, a lot of research in connection with the project, including going on Dean's tour and and um, uh, working with Nawi, Carolyn Briggs, and um, the Wurundjeri uh, Tribe Council to uh, find out about language and stories and. Uh, 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 kind of stories about of place, and so that image that you see in the third, uh, the third image that you see is uh, an animation of eels in the front of Flinders Street Station at the end of Elizabeth Street, which uh, uh, speaks to both the eel story, which is you know a, a, a Boonwurrung story from thousands of years ago, but uh, there are still eels flowing through the creek underneath that street, uh, and. Um, uh, the, one of the major themes in, in the, the Melbourne CBD journey is how Melbourne used to be the largest wetlands in Australia. Uh, it's actually a really silly place to put a, a central business district because it's all water underneath. And, and um, you know, so those, those waterways, those um, flows are still there. And the, and the, uh, and the work ends, uh, uh, the journey ends, the three-hour journey ends along the Burrung. And I won't give a spoiler as to what um, happens uh, at the end, except that it, it speaks to the history of, of that river and um, how it was changed through um, colonisation and, and settlement and, and so forth. And, and of course, the impacts of those change, but it ends with speculation on the future. So those are how some of the layers um, come out in, in the work. It's something you really have to experience to, 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 un to, um, to understand. But um, really the, the goal became, because it was started before pandemic, but it became a, a form of, um, uh, we thought, oh yeah, we'll get all these tourists coming into the city to play this thing. Um, but then it became really for Melburnians to, you know, post lockdown or for something to, that's COVID safe because, you know, you use your own device, you use your own headphones, you're not there in a big crowd. Uh, so it became this kind of COVID safe micro holiday in the city. Hello, yep. Here we go. Thanks, Troy. Um, I love the idea of the magic circle that, you know, is something that you, you step in uh, and being present and immersed uh, as well as you're, you're going about the city. Uh, you can look up 64 ways of being and that's something, as Troy said, that you can uh, do yourself and it's a wonderful uh, journey um, to go on. So thanks, Troy. And so taking the conversation, I guess, from, from our backyard here and place and history in, in Melbourne, Taking it to like a regional focus, so uh, over to this side and, and, and looking into, I guess, uh, our um, history over the last probably uh, past century. So we might be turning to region, regional towns because we're forced to currently via COVID, or because we we choose to because of you know climate issues or for whatever reason. But to return to regional towns is maybe more of an option now. Um, David, over to you first. So what have towns in regional areas done in the past to promote themselves as a destination and has it worked and what have we gained from it? Yeah, it's a good question, Helen. Um, what have they done in the past? I mean, the, you, can, you can see that many towns, even no, right now, think about things like Clunes Booktown. I mean, there are, there are lots of um, attempts by regional towns folk to... Uh, to make their places a, a destination, if only for a week or so, a year, but just to keep, just so that people know where they are. The, the work that I did on, um, and Alyssa mentioned, the, the cultural sustainability in, in um, country towns project, which uh, was undertaken, you know, from seven to five years ago. We looked a lot at Swan Hill. We looked at Swan Hill um, 
since the Second World War and uh, the sort of um, largely forgotten and pretty extraordinary phenomenon of the Swan Hill Shakespeare Festival, which was a, a major thing between 1947 and uh, into... I think it, it didn't really go past the mid-1970s, but that's 30 years of um, uh, a Shakespeare Festival in Swan Hill that was uh, a, a phenomenal uh, success for a time. And I think it's hard to know. I mean, there's, there's a number of reasons why that might have happened, and I suppose... These are things that you throw into the mix if you want to, even today, I think, if you want to make uh, a, your regional town uh, known for something that will make people want to throng there on a regular basis. Um, there are two, um, oddly enough, I suppose, agricultural academics, uh, Jean and Alan McIntyre, who did a, uh, a big survey of Victorian country towns during the Second World War, which seemed to be, it was by our standards, massively unscientific. They'd get on a train they just get off at this, you know, a lot of lot more train lines and a lot more um, stops and a lot more services. So they'd just get off for a few hours and they'd walk around each town. They'd ask people, you know, what, what there was to do in the town. And I guess also kind of try to glean how much agency people in a particular town felt that they had about their own cultural, you know, um, you know the cultural manifestations, whatever they might have been, whether they were unique to the town or whether they were... Uh, just the things that you could do to to um, to explore culture in your own um, regional town, and one of the things that the McIntyres gleaned was that it was really really great if you had one person who was totally you know to a to a fixated extent really uh, involved in in creating and running something. In Swan Hill from 1947, they had a woman called Marjorie McLeod who was a playwright who was teaching, I think she was teaching diction or something at, um, whatever it's called, you know, she was teaching people how to speak at, um, at the girls' school and she also started up this Shakespeare festival and, as I say, it was massive for a long time. In the late 50s, and I, I, I assume that, you know, it's hard to know how these things run in parallel or, or whether one would have happened without the other, by the late 1950s, um, I think partly due to some, uh, you know, a sort of progressive local government, but also a, uh, some entrepreneurs in the, in the area, uh, motels, a, a new phenomenon, the motel started to be a, a thing that people had in Swan Hill. They went from uh, two hotels to like eight or nine motels uh, by the early 1960s. And, you know, clearly this is partly just the motor holiday becomes a, a thing that people do. People, uh, cars are more affordable. The family, you know, dad, dad getting the whole family into the car, maybe with a caravan or maybe with the ambition of staying in motels and, uh, and, and disappearing for a week. Uh, that, that became something that Victorians more and more aspired to and experienced. So in the, you know, uh, and there was uh, also by the early to mid-60s, there was a strong... Uh, a move, a strong push to create a second um, uh, attraction in Swan Hill and something that would, would happen all year round and that led to the creation of the Swan Hill Pioneer Folk Museum which oddly enough has a very strong connection to that place over the road uh, because the Pioneer Folk Museum was essentially um, the, I guess the, 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 the brainchild of Eric Westbrook who was the 
um, what was it? What was it? The curator of um, of the art gallery and uh, ran the art gallery from the late fifties till the um, early seventies, and presided over its move to this location. And Roy Grounds, who was the architect, of course, of that building, so they were very interested in the in the notion of a um, you know exploring a uh, national consciousness and and uh, massaging that into something that people could be proud of and and explore. And they saw the Swan Hill Folk Museum as a, as a possible place for that kind of thing to happen. And they assembled, you know, grounds designed some buildings and the, the ground plan and assembled uh, a whole lot of, um, you know, buildings that would otherwise have been knocked down in the, in the general area to, um, to create a, um, you know, the, the Folk Museum, which was uh, a big hit in the late 60s and such a big hit that, I don't know if you'd quite call it a victim of its own success, but um, the people in Ballarat took notice and saw how good this could be and put a lot of work into making something that was not entirely dissimilar. And you, you think, you know, Swan Hill, Sovereign Hill, you know, what, what exactly are they aiming for there? And, you know, Ballarat, hell of a lot closer to Melbourne than Swan Hill is. Uh, there were other, th other similar kind of, um, you know, folk museums uh, and similar things uh, around Australia at, at the same time. So the, the wind sort of went out of Swan Hill's sails in that regard. And I, I guess what I'd say is that, you know, what might have seemed, if you're looking at it, looking forward from 1960, you go, God, we've got, you know, in the Swan Hill, if you're a sort of Swan Hill, um, um, you know, what's, what's the word? When you, you're kind of trying to drum up excitement about Swan Hill, you say we've got the... Spruker, yeah, Spruker. Thank you, Elizabeth. The, um, the, we've got the Shakespeare Festival, which is incredibly. You know, people will come from um, like that have international stars at the at the Shakespeare Festival, and they'd also have a lot of local personalities, and they'd have floats going down the main road. They'd have and they'd have national coverage. It was a very strange idea, but it uh, in lots of ways, but it seemed to work really well. Obviously, it tied into that notion of, um, you know, being a, a corner of the empire, I guess, or, or maybe the Commonwealth. Um, and that, uh, the, the Folk Museum coming along, so that's going to be a kind of a, you know, every day of the year kind of attraction. All, this, all these kind of facilities, all these motels, they even had, um, I don't think it got past the planning stages, but they were going to have a hotel at Lake Boga as well. So there's there's plans for the Botel, which um, looked looked wonderful. I don't think it happened though. And then it uh, it I've got to say, you know, all due respect to um, to Swan Hill, and and there still are some some great initiatives there, and some very passionate people about the future of Swan Hill. But I think, by in comparison, it's kind of petered out since then. And that's that's another question that I don't really I don't really have an answer as to why that why that happened. But it may well be, you know, Marjorie McLeod, for instance. Uh, retired from running the Shakespeare Festival, and they tried to keep it going after, after her, but it kind of um, fell away somewhat. So there seems to be this sort of yeah, this sort of trend of regional towns that maybe is not happening so much now, or is sort of petered, petered out and overdone with motels, or maybe the, the car holiday has been replaced by the flying holiday, and it's been kind of 
kind of left behind. But maybe we'll come back to talk a bit more about what could be gained from returning to that kind of thing in the past. But to you, Liz, you you know, well, I, I personally know, having visited many pools with you, I know you have a personal and uh, research interest in swimming pools. And there, there seemed to be a point in time where these sort of seemed to, a, a right to having a swimming pool boomed as a, as, as a right to have a, a local oasis kind of thing in, in your area. I just wonder if you could touch through some, some of your, your, your favourite things about this, you know, how they came about, what does this tell us about how people lived and, and what we valued at, the, at those times and, and has that changed? And can you hear me? Yes, you can. So firstly, on the, the personal interest in swimming pools, I think like a lot of people, it's, it's generational, but um, I spent a lot of time at country swimming pools, Ballarat and Castlemaine, and then I was reflecting maybe more than normal because we used to go to um, what were called country swimming championships, which was for people that trained in swimming. And that involved a, a holiday that was like three or four days at a motel and sitting around a country swimming pool, including su such formative locations as Swan Hill, where I heard that song, Lover, You Don't Treat Me No Good No More, about 50 times. And then you make all these associations. Anyway, so maybe more than others, I think it's normal to go on holidays to country towns and go to the public swimming pool. But, And I have turned it over the last decade or so into a bit of a hobby, mapping out where are the swimming pools in Victoria. There's about 200. That number tends to be declining year by year. And it's taken on a bit of a serious tinge because... In terms of that historical trajectory, where most of these pools are at now, particularly in small country towns, is at the stage of the council wants to close them. So many of them are either closing, being sort of given a stay of execution or turned into a splash park, which is also known as an insurance-free, risk-free version of uh, water, no depth. So I think about some of the pools I've visited over the last decade, I think I've visited half of them, maybe a hundred. and. There's a kind of repeating story that we're seeing over the last few decades that then gives you insight into the preceding periods of swimming pool construction. Um, a typical example now, which again is just repeated over the, the state and the country, is the Campaspe Shire, which is Echuca, and all these surrounding towns. Um, they've recently um, withdrawn, I guess, their aquatic strategy. This shire was formed, like many others in the 90s, when, uh, forced amalgamation. So it took in several other shires and these legacy swimming pools from the post-war period, 1950s, 1960s, which is when most of, not all, but most of our public swimming pools were constructed. And they've got seven outdoor swimming pools and all of them are slated to be closed. They've been assessed by an aquatic um, consultant and by council officers as being, they're too expensive, particularly the insurance costs. You have to have two lifeguards to open the pool now, which is... A Liz is a lifeguard. I should and I am a lifeguard pool. at one of these... Not one of those pools, but in an effort to keep the pool open, it's hard to find two lifeguards in a country town and it's expensive to pay them, but that's a minimum sort of cost to keep them open. And given that, and also the maintenance cost, because the peak period for pool construction, surviving pools was post-war, 1950s, 1960s, they're concrete, they start to crack. And if they haven't got issues now, they will have issues soon. And the councils who incidentally didn't usually build them. David may have harder statistics on this, but as a general rule, most of them were built by the community volunteers and then passed into government um, management later. So Campaspe's inherited these pools that were community built and seeing them as, well, why do we need all these pools? We could close Lockington, Colburn-Nabin, Kyabram, Stanhope, Rushworth. I visited all of them, by the way, and they're all lovely in their own way. But to a council, they just like look like a liability. They cost a lot of money and not many people go. And I mean, they do go, people value them, but it's actually very hard to visit some of these pools now because their opening hours 
a sort of arcane. It's usually between like three and seven on the afternoon if it's above 26 degrees and not on a, you know. I remember seeing the pool uh, inquiry for actually Moreland in the city and someone saying, you know, I have to look up the cycle of the moon to, to know whether the pool's going to be open. It's a bit bit like that. So we're at the stage now where these pools are closing and that's why I like to visit them. But if you go back to that kind of earlier stage when they were constructed, it was a symbol of, it was a point of pride for the town. It was, as I said, usually volunteers, either they putting their own labour or they're doing fundraisers to build them. They represented modernity, they represented health. Um, it was a leisure facility, not always a destination, but certainly a, a place to spend school holidays for children and so on, and not something you thought of as a cost. And that has been really shifted over the, over the past few decades into you know, something that is a problem and an expectation that swimming pools should be making money as well. And we, we do see a lot of conflicting ideas about it because the Campaspe Shire that I mentioned that was proposed to close all the pools, but all of the towns involved have mounted a Save Our Pools campaign, out, outraged basically that their asset is being cast as a liability and have successfully managed to get them open just for another couple of years. And this is really what's being repeated. They're never guaranteed their status. They're just sort of held on for another few years. And the expectation is that once they close Colburn Abbott, Rushworth, etc., that people in those towns will drive to Echuca, which is about 70 kilometres away in many cases, to go to an indoor pool, because that's what most councils prefer is an indoor facility. That's typically what's been built over the last few decades, which fill a role, of course, particularly in pork barrelling. I noticed in, um, in the Bellarine, there are uh, lots of indoor pools on the offing at the moment, because you can get federal funding for them. But it's because they're year-round, they have a, a wider clientele. So there's this sort of nostalgia for, I appreciate that not everyone's into an outdoor pool, but they do represent a kind of community focus or a community ownership of public space that, that I like to revisit and consider what's killing them now, what created them before. And you can also go below or behind or beyond, I suppose, the Olympic pools, which is most of the outdoor pools in Victoria were built in that post-war period and then fell into decline normally. Um, they were normally built over or in place of uh, what might be called a pre-Olympic pool which was usually more a, a natural enclosure. You might have a river or a lake that was kind of cordoned off for swimming and they became seen as unhygienic and not modern enough. Sometimes they were polluted and so on. So you've got that history there to kind of peel back and be... I find that fascinating as well, to visit some of the surviving versions of the um, interwar freshwater swimming holes that survived, like in Creswick or in Bright at the Ovens River, for example. Um, and it seems like there's a sort of a tension there, not to go off on another tangent, but like there's the idea of a swimming pool to make water clean, but also at the same time going back, you're seeing moves in, I think you're talking about this Yarra, of like seeing a mark of saying, if you can actually swim in your waterways, wouldn't that be lovely? But that's another thing of like, uh, we've, we've created a swimming pool to make water safe, but actually wouldn't it be great if the actual water was safe that we could swim in that again? So. Yeah, and it's, they caught up in this weird role swimming pool. So they're introduced originally, I mean, obviously there's always been a natural swimming culture, but where it becomes widespread is in the learn to swim programs because people would drown in the river um, but then it was just a cordoned off, kind of cleared part of the river, but completely normal to swim in a lake or a river. And people weren't so uh, either aware or concerned by what was in the water. And then you get an irony, the more you think about what's in the water, the less you want to have responsibility for it. The Yarra famously, well, just behind us, they used to have the Birdman and then it was cancelled for pollution, real concerns about that. And what is the quote, the Norman Gunston quote? 
that's the only river you can go swimming in and catch it, uh, fish wrapped in newspaper. It's like rub- rubbish, basically. It's a benchmark. There used to be swimming pools on the Yarra, um, up deep water at Alfington, that were just the river. And now it's unthinkable for people to swim in the Yarra, let alone the Maribyrnong. So Footscray's pool used to be the Maribyrnong River. Then it became the Footscray Pool. And like many in the West, and there is an equity question to this, was closed. Sunshine Pool, Footscray Pool used to be substantial facilities and closed in that austerity period in the 1990s. So the idea of rethinking, well, what if you could swim in the river? The fact that it's so appalling tells you what we've lost, I suppose. So I'm just going to bump the order we had a listener just to sort of wind up this end of the panel. But like, so touching on that point, Liz, of like fresh water and the movement there, from the stuff you've talked about, you've researched, what... What should we, like, be, be, be retrying from that past? Like, you're talking about, like, we can be in a bit of a rut about thinking, well, we all go on holidays overseas and drive fancy cars and go stay at a plush motel. Maybe not anymore, but uh, OK Motels isn't here to represent uh, push the push for the glamorous uh, revisit of motels. But what, what could we bring back from, uh, you know, regional towns or, or swimming pools or a culture of swimming or com- culture of communities building this stuff themselves? What could we be bringing back in, the, in the next, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? I think... Um, from two directions. One, I, I'd like to point to a specific example, and I put one of the photos in the, the links there. It's of the uh, Shepparton swimming pool, which was called the Raymond West swimming pool in Shepparton. Now it's an indoor, it's indoor-outdoor. It's a modern pool. It's fine, I guess. <laughs> this was the outcome of this classic process of closing the outdoor pools and making an indoor-outdoor gym money-making thing. But before the Raymond West pool was that pool, it was the Raymond West Swimming Lake and it was the biggest swimming pool in the Southern Hemisphere. It was about two, 300 metres across. It was on the same scale of the US New Deal pools, so built in the um, uh, interwar period as a kind of city-making thing. In Shepparton's case, it was kind of like a town-making endeavour a vast swimming pool that was more like a beach. It was called a lake or a beach. It was open 24 hours. It had, rather than having to uh, have lifeguards to open, they had a volunteer lifeguard service like you'd have at the beach, had the beach entry, had enormous diving towers, which of course insurance prohibits more or less now. And it just had that kind of accessibility, public ownership, public access, came with those sort of problems which led to it being enclosed and monetized as well. But much more of a beach-like experience inland country town that was an attraction and could we revisit that kind of scale? There are examples in Australia, for example, the Narrow Court Swimming Lake in South Australia manages to stay more or less as a lake despite being basically a swimming pool. And looking overseas as well, not just to the past, uh, swimming cultures like in Iceland where there's a sense that uh, with a town isn't a town without a swimming pool and that kind of culture, I think. Also, the Icelandic practice of actually having a shower before you go in the pool, that will help with the other comment I was going to make because I think we could, thinking about some of the really going back further and reflecting on swimming pools and what created them, they were, of course, created on, on public stolen land, on waterways that were uh, stolen and polluted. You can think is there an opportunity to, to incorporate what we're trying to comprehend now, reflect on and redesign about our relationship with nature? Can we do that with the way we relate to swimming pools, whether that means you swim in them or not? But can you make natural swimming pools, freshwater swimming pools as a... It's sort of the new technology of pools that's common in some European countries and it would be kind of an achievement now to move beyond the concrete, this nostalgia for the concrete and the chlorine, but we could reinvent the pool again by kind of thinking back to what we've lost as well. Reinventing the pool from the past, I love it. Okay, David, what's your, what do you want to resurrect and bring, bring oh. forward or re-adapt? 
Well, I, I will say that, you know, I've always lived in a big city. I've always lived in either Melbourne or Sydney. I've always lived in a big city. And I feel like in some ways the last thing people in regional centres need is someone like me to tell them what they should be doing. But um, I do, you know, from my elitist throne, I, um, I see that um, specialisation, I think, uh, certainly does seem to attract people and, and get places known. Um, so I think if that was what they wanted, if they want to attract people, and they may not, and I can well imagine, or I've seen it, that a lot of regional towns, uh, you know, they're a, they're a little, um, you know, um, microcosm of, of the kind of um, battling that can go on, you know, globally. They're just, uh, everybody's got a, an opinion. And um, many people probably just want to be left alone. But if they, if they want to um, thrive on a kind of, you know, the sort of, in the sort of scenario that we're talking about of uh, attracting uh, visitors as part of their economic model, then I think, I do think that places like Clunes have really, they've got it right um, in the in the kind of branding and the you know I'm sure that there are all kinds of problems associated with it, but they um, it really does seem to work. Um, it hasn't worked much in the last couple of years for obvious reasons, but um, under norm, normal circumstances, it it does seem to to work. That's the kind of thing that I would be suggesting. And I know um, Kate Berry from OK Motels couldn't be here today, but she, in our talks with her um, ahead of today, she was saying how that one of the things she really loves about um, people coming to OK Motels, which is sort of very small, often sometimes obscure um, towns, running a music festival in, a, in the motel. She said the thing she likes is it's not, you know, a glamorous overseas holiday where you're taking photos of Instagramming every, everything, although you follow OK Motels' Instagram account, you may doubt that because they look pretty cool. But she's saying it's that... that uh, connection between people who live in the city and people who live in regional areas and, and actually having those conversations and making that connection and that's what she really likes and makes a, a rewarding experience running those holidays. So bringing back that as a thing of maybe not wanting everybody in Melbourne to descend on you every single moment of the day but like how do you sort of mediate that and um, actually have an opportunity to not just be flying out of your capital city every time you want to go on holidays but maybe explore more of your places. But that's it for our, our history of regional towns at this end. Back to you, Alyssa. But let's bring it back to the city uh, for, for a little Speaking bit. Speaking of which. Yeah. Um, Troy, I might, might ask a question of you because I think, you know, some of the points that both David and Liz um, touched on when we think about regional towns is about the character of those places and the identity of those places and what it is that really attracts you to go to Clunes, for example, or Bendigo or, you know, different types of swimming pools as well. Um, I know that your work definitely, uh, you know, touches on the, the identity and the character of the place. Um, and so, yeah, wondering if, if you could speak a little bit to that and how your work might help us to really see different possibilities in a place as well. Um, I know you've got some wonderful kind of you know, local music and storytelling that comes in through 64 Ways of Being. Um, so, yeah, just interested in, in your perspective of how your work might connect us uh, to place. Yeah, sure. So, <clears throat> uh, yeah, thinking about um, place and I'm just hearing all of these names of places, I might, just, I might start with a project that we did a few years ago in um, the city, city of Yarra Rangers in Lilydale. We found that um, Lilydale uh, had 
different spellings of its name. It had Lilydale with one L, two L's. So we came up with this um, project called Welcome to Lilydale. We had three L's, and it and it just got so so such a response because um, it, it it was just an instant kind of portal or threshold for people to reimagine their place. So why why is this? New name, and why is there a, a uh, we we invented this fictional society called the Lilydale Alternate Welcoming Society, and we staged all of these welcomes along Main Street, and and uh, so kind of just provocations to to, to reimagine, and and so that's that's also uh, um, something that you know, we're we're doing with sixty four ways of being. There's um, the Melbourne CBD journey that's active now, but uh, there's a journey in Footscray that's about to 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 um, be launched in in March. Uh, and um, I mean that's I mean that's only what 15, 16 kilometers from the CBD, and it's a completely different place. And it's um, it's also a really welcoming place. Uh, it, you you're there, and you just feel like you're part of it immediately. And um, and so what we did, we we um, did, had a completely different approach. We still used local music, and we still um, uh, the uh, one step at a time like this. The theatre collective wrote short poems and things about place. But in this case, we actually interviewed um, uh, twenty different people who had either at one stage lived there or were living there now or uh, perhaps um, uh, knew some of the histories and stories of that place and kind of blended those into this uh, you know, you know, collage that you hear as you go you know, down um, uh, uh, kind of um, uh, uh, Hopkins Street or you go through the Saigon Welcome Arch or you're kind of coming down into Madden Square or all, all of these kind of locations uh, and cause kind of the main part of Footscray is actually on this great loop uh, and then, of course, down the Maribyrnong as well, which um, uh, uh, you, you end up uh, you, kind of seeing so many different things just in a really dense kind of short um, period of, 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 of kind of uh, time and space. And so um, it's bringing, so what, what this is really about is, is asking the players to go into that imaginative uh, way, of, way of being, so, to you know, pass over the threshold and, and um, slow down uh, you know, the, we heard a lot of that during lockdowns and so forth. And you know, the, I probably did more walking in the last you know two or three years than than in, in, my, in kind of at least in my local neighbourhood. Usually, I'd go to another city. You know, possibly you know, mentioned Liz mentioned Iceland. That's like the last big walk I did was you know kind of around Iceland. But then, uh, and so um, the 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 invitation is to to be in that place and to connect with that place with the people but also with um, plants animals more than human uh, so it's a a large theme even though Footscray is obviously a very urban area uh, we talk about the environmental history so for example coming back to this uh, you know kind of um, you know idea of, of name and, and what's in what's in a name we discovered that the name Foots, Footscray comes from um, uh, a place, of course, in, in, uh, in uh, kind of the UK, which was called Foots Cray. And uh, when people first, uh, you know, settled there, uh, they saw all of these um, in, uh, indigenous flowers called Wallenbergia, these kind of bluebells. Um, and it looked like this place back in England. It's kind of completely different, you know, um, uh, uh, kind of species of flower. Uh, but that was what, that, that's how it got its name. It's just like, oh, it reminds us of this place. Uh, and now, now all of those flowers are gone, of course, but um, the, um, we've kind of threaded that into the, into the story as well. But along 
along the Maribyrnong, there are a number of um, areas of uh, uh, indigenous plantings that have been restored. And, and um, if you walk far enough along, there is a whole uh, uh, kind of wetlands uh, uh, that, that kind of pops up next to, to an old bridge. So that's what we're really interested in is, is, is um, sharing those, those kind of those uh, journeys of discovery. Uh, so really, it's kind of like a, it's kind of like a guided tour, but maybe not to like, oh, in 19 so-and-so, this and this happened here. It's more like, well, did you know that, you know, if you look down, you know, in this little kind of patch of dirt, um, that they, they, or, or, uh, they used to be this here, these flowers that were here, or, or you know, you look up at this uh, uh, old theatre that's now, was once a bingo hall, and now it's, um, uh, a furniture storage kind of uh, facility, facility, apparently. Um, you know, this used to be the place where all the, you know, kind of bats and possums and so forth would, you know, kind of hang out in an urban forest. And there's still um, some she-oaks along in some streets, so pointing those out to people. So finding all of those traces, all of those kind of, um, which are also like little portals as well into the imagination. Like, oh, you know, as, as you were saying before, you know, kind of Dean, what, what a, with the, the, the text that you read out, what, 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 what was this place once and, you know, what would it be in the future? Because the other thing about Footscray is there's all of these modern ruins, um, these, uh, fast, like, the old forges building. Um, you can kind of look into it and the roof's been taken off and there's just, you know, wild, you know, uh, weeds and kind of all kinds of stuff growing in there. Um, hasn't been developed for whatever reason. Uh, and that's right in the middle of, of, of this, um, you know, kind of thriving uh, 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 kind of... Um, uh, uh, urban centre, uh, and and in fact, you know, an, another little kind of a, a story that didn't make it to to the work, but I'll share with you now because I found it really fascinating. Was that uh, uh, Footscray apparently was one stage, um, you know, everyone growing up there in the fifties and sixties were told, oh, this was going to be the centre of Melbourne. This was going to be the CBD, uh, and in fact, it makes much much more sense because. Um, on that side of the Maribyrnong, it's a volcanic plain. Uh, and so that's why the kind of topology and, and um, uh, uh, that's why uh, probably, you know, there was a lot of industry there, mining bluestone and other, other kind of, uh, um, I guess, you know, materials for making buildings and so forth. And yeah, it would make a lot more sense than, you know, building it on wetlands, which is essentially what happened. Yeah, it's so fascinating learning learning all those things about the history and the kind of layers and layers um, upon stories and built environment and natural environment that happen in, in our cities and our places as well. Um, makes me reflect a little bit too on how we might be able to, to take a break or to holiday more holistically um, rather than always, you know, going somewhere and kind of taking how we might learn as well, actually learn about the places that we're in, um, have those conversations with people uh, as well. Um, a last question before we, we head to you in the audience in case you have any of our, our panellists. So uh, have a little think if you've got, got something. Um, Dean, I, I just want to, I guess, end this question uh, with you around, uh, you mentioned that the pandemic has really forced us into a global staycation. And I think, you know, this is really a, a point that we could stop and pause uh, and really rethink our, our trajectory at the moment. Um, so I'm just wondering, um, yeah, if you could kind of comment on that and, and where we're at, uh, where we're going. Um, it's a bit of a philosophical question. Um, 
but also I know that you're doing, you know, some some fantastic work as well, um, and how some of some of the projects that you're doing might help us to take this thinking forward too. Yeah, um, look, all of us are the the sum of our past. The future really never happens, and um, I was also really interested with Troy talking about virtual reality and. Uh, then he started talking about taking a time to be um, uh, contemplative and reflective in the space. And the very first thing I thought about, well, that's what First Nations people have been doing for thousands of years. Um, and I think that's part of where we are as community now, um, which has been forced upon all of us at a global level, is to take that step back and to take that deep breath um, within our own heads um, as much as a society and that need for consumering and, and progress and all those things and to take that fourth step back for us to make some of those reconnections with our own birthplace, our own backyard and to contemplate um, all of those reconnections as community and friends and family have done for tens of thousands of years on exactly the same spot that we now call home, as friends and families have called the same place home for tens of thousands of years as well. And that need for us to make those reconnections instead of the out there, um, I, I think is something that is um, no such thing as um, uh, coincidence. I think it's synchronicity that this has happened at this particular time with all the stuff going on with climate change and all the rest of it at the same time, forcing us as a people to look back within ourselves and where we are as uh, to make some of those reconnections. Um, uh, it was also great to hear some of the other stuff as well because I had my first kiss at um, Kyabram Swimming Pool. Um, I've visited I, <laughs> I got my first um, stitches jumping off the top pool at, um, at Shepparton, the high pool. Oh, the pool high one, that's, that's a well. rare achievement. And Dave, I, I think um, I've got the idea for, um, uh, for Swan Hill, Wiggles do Macbeth. <laughs> We're there. Um, but for me, um, as I say on my the walks that I do uh, along the river here, um, reconciliation isn't just about black and white. Reconciliation is about us as a people reconciling ourselves back with the land. We are all, all of us here are caretakers and custodians. All of us are connected to, to, to place and to country. Um, it's our turn now to make those reconnections on, uh, we are all the custodians on our own home, as people have done, as I said before, for thousands of years as well. Um, uh, some of the things that I'm uh, doing just quickly to, to help with some of those reconnections is I'm um, working with an artist, um, uh, Joe uh, Griffiths, to recreate the waterfalls on Queensbridge Street. We're in phase two at the moment, so the entire 90 metres of Queensbridge Street will hopefully be returned to falling water um, that has been silent for 200 years to make the opportunity to get Melburnians to reconnect with a place that's been there for, um, that's been silent for 200 years. Um, I do a lot of stuff with grasslands, which I call Lost Lands Found, 
which is a um, micro, micro staycation of getting people to look over a old post and rail fence that I made to look at about 50 different species of indigenous grasslands. Um, I've done it for um, Hobson's Bay. I've done it now in Malvern for Stonington Council as well to make a connection for us back to the land or ecology, whatever you want to call it as well. Um, but for me, that, that, that the importance of that contemplating and that reconnection um, are something that is absolutely vital and the, the staycation of us back into our own soul, back into our own home as well. Thank you, Dean. They were such, um, yeah, insightful and, and deep reflections. Great time to head to the audience for some questions. Uh, do we have a mic for the audience or we should share one of ours? Okay, do you want to, we can share it. Share one. Uh, Even sanitised. Who's ready to have a go? Any questions? I'll leave, it, I'll leave it an uncomfortable pause for a couple of seconds there just to see whether... Any any questions? Well, while you're pondering your questions, and I'll come back, and, and uh, any questions of you for, for each other? Otherwise, otherwise I'll throw to Alyssa. David looks like well, he, could, he could create... Something? Nothing? Uh, so many, but they've all gone out of my head right now. <laughs> yeah. We'll also take stories of uh, swimming pools. Which, wait, which regional swimming pool towns, you got stitches motels, at? Or your first kiss? First kisses, stitches. <laughs> Sorry, no first kiss stories. Not, not at any Victorian swimming pools anyway. I guess I'm. it's not a question, it's a reflection that... I was like, how do these panellists all kind of connect? And I feel like you're telling, in some ways, the story of, of my um, summer holidays because I've really connected much more back to, to the local place um, of Melbourne and a country town that I spend time in. But particularly also the, um, a trip to Bendigo on the train, which just meant that we could only walk around and it was much more local and quiet and... And um, it allowed us to really see the town in a different light. And we went to the pool because what else do you do on a hot afternoon in a regional town? And, um, yeah, so I, I really I saw some love... There was some really lovely moments in, uh, in Bendigo and that, that summer holiday and that it, it just... It was really lovely reflecting on my personal experience while you were all talking because it is really, I think, back to Dean's last closing comments about connecting and slowing down and being contemplative um, and, and learning from our very rich tens of thousands of years of history um, that we, we need to learn more, more of. So just a little rambling comment, but I, I really appreciate the stories and the insights tonight because... It, it's connected um, really well with me. Thanks. Thank you. I just wanted to add, I mean, a theme that I didn't speak to enough was really childhood. Obviously, nostalgia reflection comes out, but one of the things I think swimming pools can tell you about the past that's changed, that's worth revisiting, is the lives of children and the freedoms they had, whether we can reclaim some of them. So there's some great videos on um, film, Sound and Film Archive where they're interviewing children in the, I think, 50s, 60s, 70s about what they did on school holidays. And what's striking is that they're not with their parents. <laughs> they're 
I did this with my friends. I roamed the streets here. I mean, um, nowadays you just get run over is the main theme. But there's a certain freedom. People sometimes look back to swimming pools in Australia because it was a place they went to as a child where they weren't monitored or they had a, a formative experiences there and so on. Whether we're able to recreate that or modify it for now, it's worth thinking about just how different... Uh, children's lives were, and they didn't go on planes to Queensland. They would obviously love going on caravan holidays in motorhomes and things like that, but most children didn't travel far. But there's a kind of, and you see this in transport research, for the further we travel away on these structured vacations internationally, the smaller children's lives often become. So they go to Thailand or Bali, but their actual rights to, to go somewhere locally is smaller than it ever has been in history. And that's compounded by the kind of lo local infrastructure questions we have, like do you build one enormous indoor facility that costs $20 to get into 70 kilometres away or do you value local pools because it's somewhere that children can go? So I appreciate that kind of... And I just... This is a non-sequitur comment, but all the reflections about travelling... I keep thinking about, I saw a documentary about Cancun, you know, spring break in Cancun once. And they asked this guy, he was totally wasted on a beach. He said, I'm having a great vacation. And they said, do you know where you are? He said, no, I just got on a plane and I ended up here. And it's just sort of, it's almost the opposite experience. Maybe there's something that's the same because to him being on holidays is the immersive experience of being intoxicated on a beach. But... He had no idea where he was and a lot of what the panellists are talking about is just how much you can get from just thinking about where you are. So, Great point. Um, another speaker up the back there. Thank you. Um, yeah, maybe coming back to these childhood memories and children roaming more free and I was wondering what that... So when we travelled through Victoria camping this summer and I have the feeling that a lot more people do that and people are going back to camping maybe a bit more um, modern and <laughs> with more gadgets and everything than before but I have the feeling that this is also a little bit getting going back to the past maybe well for the parents as childhood memories but also for the children I have the feeling on the, those campgrounds they are more free to roam they can go into the rivers and so maybe just some reflections on that if that is something from the past that we could revive in, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I was camping a lot over summer and thinking that it was actually, going back to the idea of what's a holiday, whether it's that idea, I think uh, Troy was mentioning the idea of thresholds. Used to be the threshold was going through those big steel doors at Tullamarine Airport to go overseas. That's You got through there and you're like, oh, finally, my phone's not going to work anymore. No one can call me. I'm on holidays. But, uh, but that, that not feeling relaxing sometimes, running around a country, coming back, having to unpack clothes for the next week and do your washing with camping is actually just going back to why you have a holiday, which is to kind of relax. So I think that's a really good point. Does anyone else have things to add around yeah, camping and returning yeah, to that? I'll just say really quickly because I was, I was going to say it before... Um, uh, bushwalking, you know, because I've been bush, uh, been walking so much the last couple of years, and that's that's something I've developed even more of an interest in because that's what I was doing my last overseas holiday in in Iceland was oh you, you know walking for two hours to see a waterfall, um, but I'm doing that on the other side of the world. I can do that here, uh, and I, I was actually going to throw in a, a, another kind of I guess question for all of us or a provocation because um, um, Dean was talking about how you know this is also a moment of reflection to think about well. You know, oh, you know, the old normal was actually 
fairly toxic and, you know, how could we do things differently? And there's all kinds of ideas floating around about work and, and leisure time and so forth. And, you know, one of them is this, you know, four-day um, working week. And so, you know, if you, if you have a three-day weekend, yeah, that's enough time to, to really get out of the city or, you know, go, go someplace. And, um, and, you know, it, it just doesn't need to be, like, working you know, yourself to, 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 to um, almost to death until <laughs> you get to, tele, you know, the, the, the gates at Telemarine Airport and then you, you know, rush off to another country to, to relax. Um, it can be, you know, more of these shorter kind of breaks, these shorter holidays. And, and um, yeah, I, I guess, I, I mean, because I'm a, I, I'm a game maker, I always see things through a you know, lens of, you know, of, uh, of, of, I guess, of a game world. And, and um, so... This this uh, this summer we decided just to stay home, um, but I, I bought this book about druidry. I thought I'm going to become a druid, you know. <laughs> so you know that's like a bit of an adventure. It's an interesting way to explore the world. And and um, I actually went did a bit of a went down the rabbit hole. I looked online. Oh, you can do a three year course in druidry, and it costs this much. But really, I mean, that just means knowing the names of plants and knowing you know what what. Um, well, you know what the world is around you, rather than just oh these are trees and flowers. And so you know that's something I'm really interested in doing is you know going on short bushwalks and figuring all that stuff out. I thought you were also going to say you know you're interested in becoming because of that gaming immersive thing. You know the movie being John Malkovich. Would we take a holiday? Could I be Troy for a few days or something <laughs> like true. that? Yeah, Would yeah. that be a holiday? Would that yeah, just role play? <laughs> but a historical kind of um, thing to throw in on that is maybe just to revisit. I mean pros and cons, but just the sheer relish in the late 19th, early 20th century with which people, working people embraced the first, you know, having Saturday afternoon off and they would just, couldn't hold them back. We're going to go on a ferry, we're going to go on a, to the beach, we're going on day trips, we're getting on our bicycles, we're just making an absolute field day out of this. Um, they didn't sort of just sit home and catch up on work kind of thing. It was a hard one thing to have a weekend, first off half a Saturday and then a full Saturday and things like that. So, David, could you add to that at all? It feels like your area maybe. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure. I was this morning in the, um, the site of the, uh, was the Maribyrnong uh, Tea Gardens, mm. down, um, which were apparently established in 1909 and quite, a, quite an extraordinary array of entertainments were, were put on for a few decades in that part of the world, which is now a beautiful part of the world, but it's just uh, sort of sculpted lawn and, and a bit of statuary. But um, those kinds of places that were made as, once again, you know, a la Shakespeare festivals, they're made as, you know, a, a destination that were, you know, was just going to attract people uh, and, and make a place known. And uh, I really love that sort of thing. I think um, I just want to uh, be a little fly in the ointment when, when we talk about um, the, first of all, the way people lived 100 years ago, I think as a historian I would say was kind of horrible compared to how we, many, most of us are privileged to live now in Australia. I think things were pretty awful and the kind of, the way that, you know, the freedoms of children, which I think, you know, I, I stalk a lot of... Um, uh, local history groups and so on on social media. So I see, you know, a, probably a little too much for my own pleasure, I see a lot of people older than me talking about how great their childhoods were and I sort of feel... They were also drowning and getting run over by cars. Exactly, thank you. They were... They, <laughs> and they you know, couldn't go to high school I, and stuff. I look in the news... I also read a lot of newspapers from 50 or 60, 70 years ago and I see 
I mean, obviously newspapers report on terrible things that happen, not ordinary lives being lived, but nevertheless. Exactly, you know, one of the reasons that swimming pools became such a phenomenon was people were drown... Children were, were drowning on hot days, they just wandering, people couldn't swim, all those kinds of things. I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a minefield, and I know it's... You know, I almost feel kind of rude bringing it up, but but I feel like there's there's a, another angle on, on a lot of the things that. Well, I'm glad I got we were gonna fly in the ornament before the event was over because I, I was feeling we were lacking that. So thank you for providing that. Good. So we've got one short, sharp last question. Do you want to ask over to you, Alyssa, to, to pose this to the question? A, a quick recommendation for the audience, and I'll uh, wrap up with with Kate's response. Um, so the question is, if there's one kind of holiday you'd recommend to the audience, what would it be? in a sentence. Um, Well, for me, it's all about getting to know your own backyard. Um, It's a pretty easy one for me. Um, People talk about tourism, and for me, tourism is is education, and we're talking about camping, and uh, that's a way, uh, an opportunity to connect back with with nature, with the earth, with the land, as uh, as a person. And I, I think for me, um, you can do that anywhere. I do that down at Darabin Creek every um, every second day. Um, you can do that right in your own backyard um, to make some of those deep connections. Um, just got to be open to it. Yeah, uh, I was going to say. A- there's that, that saying, a change is as good as a holiday. And I feel like that kind of really ties into this theme of resilience and, you know, had to also, I guess, put a bit of a negative spin on it. But since um, David's opened the, the, the Pandora's box, I mean, this decade is going to be super challenging and there's going to be a lot of change. And so having uh, ways to 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 deal to I guess deal with that to process that is really important and that's why I work with um, urban play and, and so I would say the best holiday for me is a holiday that happens in your own mind and so you sometimes you can do that on your own couch uh, if you play a great video game you know that so uh, the kind of project on and off called Ludea which is about the collective experience of, of play that we all we all have when we cross that threshold into into the realm of the imagination but of course that can happen anywhere I mean you could leave this space now go for a walk along the river or, or even just go back to to your home in your own backyard as, as Dean was saying and um, see it through a, a different lens and, and you know kind of for five ten minutes or a whole day perhaps um, uh, reimagine the world and have have that holiday in your mind. David, your holiday recommendation. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I say both these guys are, are right. I, I agree. I um, totally endorse both of those ideas uh, or viewpoints. I, I think that um, I've done a lot of work over the years on, in an Australian context, on stigma of, of place. And I think that uh, one of the things, like sort of borrowing a little bit from, from Dean's... Um, uh, idea there. I think that, you know, getting to know Melbourne, and so many people think they know Melbourne and they really know their own well, well-worn tracks around Melbourne and, you know, places that they haven't visited for 20 years or, or, um, or places that they've heard about or seen on TV that they think they know and they don't. And I, I really think that there's uh, a lot to be said for, um, I guess not many people have a Melways anymore, but somehow finding a big list of places in Melbourne and just like shutting your eyes and stabbing a pace with your finger and vowing whatever's there, you're going to go there. Well, if it's where you actually already live, then it's then you, you find somewhere else. But um, 
you know, somewhere that you've never been and within Melbourne and going there, hopefully it's somewhere you've never even really heard of um, or it's somewhere that you, you think you know but you, you're bound to be wrong. And I really think that that's a little bit of, you know, that is staycation-y but it's also, um, you know, there's a lot of parts of uh, Melbourne. I, this week I was meant to be, except for um, a little thing called COVID-19, I was meant to be in Germany and instead, my partner and I having our staycation basically in, in North Melbourne. But we find ways to, to go and explore different parts of the city. And we, um, you know, I think we're getting quite a bit out of it. Although this week, the, um, the heat wave has, has made that difficult as well. Nevertheless, that, that's, my, um, that's my recommendation is kind of um, taking a chance on a, on a part of Melbourne that is hitherto unknown and unexplored. And mine was going to be sort of similar, so it's a good segue. I think doing research on things like swimming pools, pubs, things like that, it's really just a framework for developing a list of places that you probably wouldn't have gone to otherwise and then finding out more about them. And we unfortunately missed out on having Kate from OK Motels, but I think their slogan was something like going the places you normally drive through rather than to. And, um, you know, that's swimming pools for me have been a way to kind of find those places and and get something out of them. And it, if you're not into swimming, it could be just something random else, like cinemas of Victoria or whatever. Just something that gets a, a way to uh, um, visit these places and see whether, whether you can make a holiday out of them. And on that note, in terms of the transport, um, you can do similarly, like with, if you're still comfortable on public transport, you can just stick a pin on a nap, map and see where you can end up. Um, you might not like it, but then you can have a, you'll have an anecdote and that's kind of a holiday, right? Everyone loves a holiday disaster. I went to North Melbourne and it was horrible. That was... <laughs> and to stick on a theme, we actually got Kate's response from her before, before the event and she said, pick a town that's off the highway with a fun-sounding name and a pub and jump in the car. So Speed, uh, that's a fun-sounding name. Speedy? Menangatang. Menangatang, okay. Everyone, there you go, on your list, Menangatang. Uh, Guranong. Guranong. Liz could just go all day with uh, the, the strange towns uh, that you probably haven't heard of before. But... That's the end of the session today. Um, Alyssa, you might have anything else to add to this, but thank you very much, everybody, for coming down. Uh, we've, we've remained clear skies-ish, uh, maybe for at least another five minutes. Uh, but thank you so much for coming down. Thank you to all of the marvellous speakers for, for coming on board. Thank you, David, for stepping in at literally the 11th hour. Um, and thanks, uh, Alyssa, for um, taking part, uh, helping organise this and being my co-conspirator, I think. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again next year. Anything from you, Alyssa, to add? Uh, just in, enjoy yourself now that you've got lots of ideas for how you can take a break. Um, I hope you can leave here knowing that even though we can't go too far, there are many, many things we can do uh, to refresh. So thank you for coming and listening and have a lovely night. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.